welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's Easter Sunday podcast for 2020. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Choose Your Own Adventure was one of the most popular children book series of the 1980s and 90s, selling more than 250 million copies between 79 and 98. The very first book in the series was called The Cave of Time, and uh, some of the other titles in that first round of books are Your Codename is Jonah, The Mystery of Chimney Rock, Who Killed Harlow Thornby, and Deadwood City, to name just a few. I totally remember this series from when I was a kid. It was originally created for 7 to 14-year-olds, and what was unique about the series is the book is written in the second person, meaning that the main character is actually the reader, that you become a, a private investigator, a race car driver, a spy, a doctor, a mountain climber, an explorer, whatever it is, as you read the story, you become those characters. It was a brilliant concept. Now, the series gets its name because on almost every page, decisions must be made by the readers. One of my church members uh, let me borrow their copy of Danger in the Desert. It was originally entitled Balloon to the Sahara, if you have one of the original series. But here's how the book begins. You are visiting France with your two best friends, Peter and Sarah. For a lark, you all rent a balloon. Peter packs a picnic basket, and Sarah buys a large jug of fresh milk. Harry, your dog, begs to come along, and you let him scramble in. At last, you lift off and start your adventure. To the north, you see the white-capped Alps, and to the south, the blue waters of the Mediterranean Sea. As you drift over villages, people look up and wave at you. Suddenly, you notice storm clouds approaching from the north. And so here's where the first two uh, options come in, where you can choose your own adventure. If you act now, you can release gas from the balloon and land before the storm overtakes you. If this is your choice, turn to page two. Perhaps the storm will pass quickly. Maybe you can write it out. If this is what you decide to do, turn to page three. So right off the back, uh, you have to make these choices. Are you going to play it safe or are you going to take risks? And every other page or so requires similar types of choices. In fact, there's 39 different endings on the book, depending on the choices you make as you go through, including having the hull of your submarine ripped open in a maritime accident and death by drowning. I would always go back to the last page I was on and pick something different if that was my ending. Uh, Two, having uh, someone from the United Nations hiring you on for additional undersea adventure. Not the end, but just the beginning of another adventure. Well, welcome to Easter Sunday, friends. Seven weeks ago, we started this series called The End. And man, who would have known how much our lives, in fact, the whole world would have changed in these seven weeks? I mean, this has been a Lenten series like none other, where just about all of us have had to draw closer to God, mostly out of necessity, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The series has been looking at the last week of Jesus' life on earth, what many call Holy Week. And we've been following the storyline from the Gospel of Mark. 
Mark is the shortest of all the accounts, uh, the four uh, Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life. And most scholars believe that Mark was probably the earliest uh, one written approximately three and a half to four decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. And not surprisingly then, Mark's Easter account is also the shortest of the four Gospels. It's a mere eight verses long. To compare, Matthew's narrative is 20 verses, Luke's is 53 verses, and John tops them all at 56 verses divided into two chapters, but hey, it's not a competition, right? And you might also be surprised to find out that Mark has no appearances of the risen Jesus and no post-Easter sayings by him either. In fact, one author that I read this week, Richard Swanson, in his book, Provoking Mark's Gospel, comments, ask any Christian to tell you the Easter story, and my money says, she doesn't tell you the story out of Mark. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me, uh, or pull out your smartphones and open your Bible apps to Mark chapter 16. By the way, if you don't have a, smart, uh, a uh, Bible app on your smartphone, if you have the Palmdale UMC Church app, one of the features on that app on the home page is a connection to the YouVersion Bible. And, and every Sunday, we make sure that it's bookmarked to the exact chapter that we're going to be reading from in worship that day. Mark chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. So the Sabbath was a day of holy rest and worship in the Jewish calendar. It ran from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday, and no work whatsoever could be done during the Sabbath, including something as important as burying one's loved ones. Jesus was crucified on Friday, and Mark tells us that a small group of women were there to see him buried. Led by a man named Joseph of Arimathea, the burial was done rather hastily. They had to get Jesus off the cross and into the tomb before the sun actually set so they could get in before the Sabbath. When the Sabbath was over, three of the same women went out to buy the necessary spices that usually accompany a burial. And now, the following morning, Sunday morning, they're heading back to Jesus' tomb. Now, what's interesting is that they have no idea what they're about to witness and what's about to transpire in their lives on this very first Easter morning. The spices that they brought were used to reduce the odor of a decomposing body. So it's clear that these three women are on their way to anoint a corpse. They don't know they're going to proclaim the resurrection. But remember that on Wednesday during this last week of Jesus' life, an unnamed woman came and already anointed Jesus' head with oil from an alabaster jar. In fact, Jesus commended her by saying that she has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. So these three women are coming to do something that at least symbolically Mark has showed us has already been accomplished. Verse 2. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And so as we watch the women coming to the tomb this first Easter morning, those of us who have been following Jesus' story in Mark's gospel, well, we have such high hopes, don't we, 
I mean, the 12 disciples that had spent three years with Jesus, following him around Galilee and Judea, listening to him preach and teach, seeing him heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, uh, those hand-picked male disciples, all of them deserted Jesus and fled when he needed them most. And only a few women remained. And so we're hopeful that these women that have stuck it out to the end, that they will finally get it right, that they will be true and faithful disciples. Verse 4. When they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. It's great. The, the women were so focused on completing their task of anointing Jesus' dead body that they haven't even to stop to figure out the logistics of everything. Right? Who's going to roll away that large stone for them so they can get inside and do what they need to do? Well, they soon discover this is a moot point because the tomb was already open. All the barriers had been moved. And I love that sim- symbolism of the stone already having been rolled away. That that's one of the powerful truths about Jesus' resurrection. That there are no barriers getting in the way between us and God. None. Any boulders or burdens from your past, things that have previously seemed to hang us up and get in the way of our relationship with Jesus, all of that has been rolled away in light of the resurrection. Now, sitting inside, the women discover a young man dressed in white. Mark doesn't specifically say that this is an angel, but many scholars note that in other parts of the Bible, angels are often identified as young men. White is often the color that's associated with heavenly figures and add to the fact that Mark mentions he's sitting on the right side, a a place of honor and authority, plus the speech he's about to make. All of these factors cause scholars to believe that, yes, this indeed was an angelic being. Verse 6, but he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place that they laid him. I love how Mark tells us that the women were alarmed. In Greek, that word can mean both amazed and or distressed. And in this case, one of the biblical scholars I read said it literally means amazed out of themselves. And that's a typical response in the Bible uh, when you see people encountering angelic visits. And so this young man says to them, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. How how many of us need to hear those same words today? I mean, life as we know it has been radically changed in the past four to five weeks. The the harsh reality of the COVID-19 virus has cast a pall on the entire world. Our friendships Families, jobs, finances, passions, day-to-day routines, all of them have been completely and utterly disrupted. And I'm sure at one time or another, you have felt as I have, just completely overwhelmed by what's happening. Maybe we need to hear again these words. Do not be alarmed, for you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. This is our opportunity to to have permission to take a breath, to 
relax, to let go of the fear and feelings of alarm that we have almost every day. Position yourself now to receive an amazing gift because here comes the power of Mark's Easter story and that's in verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. R. Alan Culpepper in his Smith and Helwey's commentary on Mark notes that the testimony of women was not legally admissible in Jewish law. Nevertheless, it's precisely women that are given the first Easter resurrection message to carry out. I mentioned on Thursday night that uh, the early church was way ahead of its time when it came to empowering women and giving them positions of responsibility and authority that the rest of the culture was denying them. What specifically is this message that they're, that they're asked to proclaim? That, that Jesus is alive and the tomb is empty? No, not according to Mark. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, on the surface, it may not seem that surprising that the angel has asked the women to go and give a message to the disciples, right? They are the ones, these 12 men, they are the ones that have been with Jesus for three years, day in and day out, following him everywhere. And yet, we also remember, as we've been reading through Mark's story, that all the disciples deserted Jesus and fled. Jesus had tried prepping them for what was about to take place in Jerusalem. And three times before they arrived in the holy city, he told them what was going to take place. And three times they completely missed what he was saying to them. And then to call Peter out by name, again, not so surprising. Peter has been the, well, we shall say, self-appointed leader among the disciples. But let's look a little bit closer. The New Revised Version of the Bible says, and Peter. That little word and, we often throw it away. In the Greek, it's the word chi. In addition to and, it could also be translated especially or even. So go tell his disciples, even Peter, or more powerfully, go tell his disciples, especially Peter. Why especially? You may remember that when Jesus was with his disciples on celebrating the Last Supper on that Thursday evening, out of love, he told them, and I know that all of you are going to flee and leave me tonight. Peter, however, always one to speak up, made it a point to basically throw his fellow disciples under the bus and go, yeah, I don't know about them, but Jesus, I will never leave you. You and me, we're going to be like this. I would even die with you, Peter said. Well, over the course of the evening, not only did Peter flee like the rest when he was identified by some passerbys as being one of Jesus' disciples, Peter publicly disavows even knowing who Jesus is. Three times he does this. And that's just a few days ago in this story. So that simple Greek word chi, even especially, becomes a word of grace and forgiveness for each of us. Go tell his disciples, especially Peter, especially Jim, especially 
Aaron, especially Don, especially Dathan, especially Raymond, especially Inga, especially Cynthia, especially insert your name right there, that he is going ahead of us to Galilee. You see, the good news of Easter, friends, is a message of restoration and forgiveness, That even those of us who have denied, abandoned, and forsaken our Savior, those of us who least deserve it, even they, even we, will be welcomed back and part of God's plan for the kingdom moving forward. The angel didn't say, oh, well, tell the disciples they completely blew it. I mean, they had their chance. Jesus is going to come back, but he's going to pick a new crew, and hopefully they'll do a better job of following him than you, lousy lot. No, that wasn't the message. Regardless of how miserably the disciples failed him, Jesus still calls them and us back into discipleship. Let that sink in for a moment. Easter brings hope for all of us. Father Greg Boyle is a Catholic priest and the founder and director of Homeboy Industries, the world's largest gang intervention and rehabilitation program, and it's located here in Southern California. In his amazing book, Tattoos on the Heart, Father Greg tells the story of Scrappy. It was March of 2004. Scrappy walks into our office, says Greg, and and I'm not proud to admit it, but my heart sinks. From the perch of my own glass-enclosed office, I can see Scrappy talking to Marcos, the receptionist, who's also from Scrappy's gang. He's apparently signing up to see me. I haven't seen Scrappy in years since he's been incarcerated all that time, but, but even before that, I'm not sure if he's ever set foot in my office. My heart is in some lower register. Let's let's just say that Scrappy and I, well, we've never been on good terms. I first met him in the summer of 1984. I was newly ordained at the Dolores Mission. He was 15 years old. His probation officer assigned him to the church to complete his hours of community service. But the chip on his shoulder was the size of a Pontiac. I don't have to listen to you. You're not the boss of me. I don't have to do what you say. Some five years later, I'm standing in front of a packed church preaching at the funeral of one of Scrappy's homeboys. If you love Kuko, and if you want to honor his memory, I say to the congregation, then you will work for peace and you will love your enemies. Immediately, Scrappy stands up and moves out of his pew and into the center aisle and all eyes are on him. I stop speaking and I see that eternal scowl that I had come to know in the summer of 1984. It's fixed on me as he walks straight up to where I am. We stand face to face. He mad dogs me with some intensity. And then he turns and exits the church through the side door. Three years later, I'm riding my bike as I would in those days, patrolling the projects at night. And I enter Scrappy's Barrio and there's a commotion. The homies have formed a circle and clearly two of their rank are going head up. I break through the mob and indeed I find Scrappy thrown down with one of his own homies. I Find out later that the beef was over some girl. Well, I stop the fight, and Scrappy reaches into the front waist of his pants and pulls out a gun that he starts waving around wildly. And the crowd seems to be more horrified than I am. There's great gasp and pleas, and, hey, dog, damn, put the gun away. 
And don't disrespect GG as what they often called Father Greg. Scrappy steadies the gun right at me, says Greg, and with half a laugh says, damn, and I'd shoot his ass too. Are you getting the sense, Greg writes, of what our relationship is right? So years later, when I, when I see him in my office, it takes me a moment, but I locate my heart, which is somewhere in the basement of my body, and then Marcos intercoms me. <clears throat> uh, Scrappy's here, and then his voice gets squeaky and tentative. Do you want to see him? I mean, Marcos knows enough that this would be in some doubts, but course, I say, send him in. Now, Scrappy's not a large fellow, but there is no fat in his mid-sized build. His hair is slicked back, his mustache is understated. He hugs me because, well, not to would be kind of awkward. We have, after all, known each other for over 20 years. He sits and then he wastes no time. Look, Let's just be honest with each other and talk man to man, he says. You know that I've never disrespected you. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, okay, uh, I'm going to go for it. Um, well, Scrappy, how about that time you walked out of my homily in Coco's funeral? Or the time that you uh, pulled a gun on me? And now Scrappy looks generally perplexed by what I've just said, and he cocks his head and scrunches his face like a confused beagle. Yeah, well, besides that, gee... And then we do something, Greg writes, that we have never done in the two decades of our relationship. We laugh. I mean, we full-on, gut-busting, hold-the-table laugh. And we carry on until this runs its course, and then Scrappy settles into the core of his being beyond that tough bravado that he has to keep up in his gang. He says, I've spent the last 20 years building a reputation for myself. And now, I regret, I regret that I even have one. And then another first. He cries. He, he, he truly cries. He's doubled over and the rocking seems to soothe the release of this great ache that's just emanating from his entire being. And when the wailing stops and he comes up for air, he, he dabs his eyes and, and rubs his sleeve across his nose. And then he finally makes contact and he asks me, now what do I do? I know how to sell drugs. I know how to gangbang. I know how to shank fools in prison, but I don't know how to change the oil in my car. I know how to drive, but I don't know how to park. And I don't know how to wash my clothes except in the sink of a cell. Greg writes, I hire him that day. And he begins work the next morning on our graffiti crew. Scrappy discovered, as scripture has it, that where he is standing is holy ground. He found that narrow gate that leads to life. God's voice was not of restriction to shape up or ship out. Scrappy found himself in the center of vastness and right in the expansive heart of God. That sacred place towards which God had been nudging Scrappy all of his life, it was not to be arrived at, but discovered. Hmm. But go, tell his disciples and Scrappy that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, the other part of this simple command to the women is where 
Jesus is going. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. Jesus is always moving ahead of us. M. Eugene Boring in his New Testament library commentary on Mark says, Jesus does not rest in peace. He is still underway going ahead of all of us fearful disciples. You see, the work of the kingdom of God is ongoing. Jesus is moving ahead of us even as I speak and as we watch this together. Galilee is significant because it's where everything begins for Jesus and the disciples. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, down here in the southern part of the country in Judea. Samaria was in the middle, the home of the infamous uh, Good Samaritan, uh, the story, the parable that Jesus told. And then Galilee was up north. This is where Jesus was born in Nazareth. Galilee was where Jesus started his ministry. It's where he called his disciples. It's where they witnessed his teachings, his miracles, his exorcisms. It's where he welcomed all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. It's where he stood alongside the outcasts and the undesirables like Scrappy. It's their home turf, both for the disciples and for Jesus. But when taken in connection with the invitations for the disciples, especially Peter, to meet Jesus, to start over, to begin again, Galilee becomes the place of second chances. It's the place of second chances for all of us, that Jesus is going ahead of us to Galilee, showering each of us with forgiveness, grace, and reconciliation. That is the meaning that the angel gives to the women there. In one short verse, verse 7 of Mark 16. Verse 8. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I believe the proper phrase today would be, wait, what? Yes, you read and heard that correctly. These three stellar women, the only ones to stick with Jesus all the way through his arrest and crucifixion, the ones that we hoped would finally be the model of discipleship that the 12 male disciples weren't able to be. These same women, upon seeing the empty tomb and being given a special message of hope, forgiveness, and restoration, what do they do? They flee from the tomb and say nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, pardon my French, but what the bleep kind of ending is that? I mean, seriously, it's got to be one of the worst endings of a story ever. In fact, it's so bad that the second century church thought, you know what, we got to spice this up a little, and they wrote two additional endings to insert into Mark's gospel. I mean, if you look at your Bibles, or even at the bottom of the, the Bible app, you'll see what's called the shorter ending of Mark. It's tacked on verse, after verse 8. It doesn't even have a verse number itself. And then the longer ending of Mark, which is verses 9 through 20. But archaeologists and scholars tell us the oldest manuscripts that we have of Mark's gospel actually end at verse 8. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Marianne Tolbert in the Women's Bible Commentary notes 
how upsetting this ending is, especially from a modern-day perspective. I mean, after observing Jesus' continual struggles to make his male disciples understand his teachings and seeing their ultimate failure, readers want so much for someone in the story to prove faithful to Jesus, she writes. It's devastating to watch those who have already had more faithfulness than the 12 also fail as well. And we agree with her, don't we? But then she says this. But from an ancient perspective, the point of the Gospel of Mark may rest with this painful ending. Ancient writing was intended to do things, to make people act or believe or change their behavior, not just to entertain them with a suitably concluded literary experience, which forces us to think things through, doesn't it? Okay, let's... Let's keep track. Uh, The disciples abandoned him and fled. The women at the empty tomb fled. So who's left to deliver the message that this angelic young man gave? Who has witnessed Jesus' preaching, seen his healings, watched his crucifixion and burial, listened to the wondrous announcement at the tomb? Oh, wait. We have. Right? All of us that have been reading along in Mark's gospel with the failure of just about everyone else in the story, we are left to make a choice. You might even say, we get to choose our own adventure. By the way, you know how the Gospel of Mark begins? Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark doesn't say, this is the good news. It's just the beginning Why? Because maybe that message of love, grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, and grace, we have to be the ones to continue the message, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's up to us, friends. We have to tell others that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 8. There is nothing, nothing we've done in our past, Nothing that we might be stuck in right now, nothing that will afflict us in the future, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, and one more thing. Remember me telling you a while back that Mark's gospel doesn't have any of the birth narratives that Matthew and Luke also have? Do you know how uh, the beginning of the book starts? I mean, well, after verse 1 at least. And verse 9 says this, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So where does the Gospel of Mark start? It starts in Galilee. And maybe, just maybe, when the angel tells the women, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, maybe Mark is inviting us to go back to the beginning of his Gospel And instead of reading it for information about Jesus, the disciples, and and ministry, maybe we're supposed to now read it as disciples ourselves, in the second person, for our transformation. We will meet Jesus in these verses, chapters, and pages in Mark's gospel when we read it with Easter eyes, when we expect to meet Jesus in those pages, when we hear him calling us to follow him as his disciples. Hmm. And as we read through, we'll decide, if we choose to, to walk alongside him, 
and to see what it is that Jesus is already doing in our lives, in our families, in our community, and in the world. It truly is the greatest choose-your-own-adventure of all time, friends. Each and every day, we have an opportunity to step into kingdom work. And there's no telling where this adventure might take us. But I can say this without a shadow of a doubt. No matter where we choose to go on our discipleship adventure, no matter how often we make the right choice or maybe the not-so-right choice, Jesus goes with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Well, what do you know? Turns out that the end is actually just the beginning after all. Happy Easter, my brothers and sisters. Now let's go do our work. And all God's people said, amen, amen. I invite you to join with our people.